everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IJ nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Kylie Potensen, who was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 2014. Despite the flares battling IBD, she continued to pursue her graduate degree and is now an occupational therapist providing telehealth services to clients, many who have chronic illness. Four years ago, she started writing songs and found music to be a refuge and passion throughout her journey. And she's here today to share her story with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kylie, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, I am very excited to talk more about your work and your music. But first, let's get started with your IBD story. And can you share with us when and how you were first diagnosed? Yeah, so I was diagnosed in 2014, shortly before I started graduate school to become an occupational therapist. Yeah, it was actually middle of March of 2014 that I remember starting to have some minor symptoms. And it was actually around the exact same time that I found out that I was accepted into the graduate program that I ended up attending. And so, yeah, it was just, you know, having a little bit of blood in the stool, which is never (laughs) something you want to see. And so I had a little bit of denial um, and was just kind of like, okay, this is weird, but let's just see what happens. And actually thinking about it more, I might have actually had little episodes of blood in my stool probably for about a year before it became more of a persistent concern, but I kind of just wrote it off as being like my period maybe. But yeah, for this, it was about a six week period of it just becoming a little bit more. And then I started to experience kind of some urgency. And so I decided, yeah, I needed to go get it checked out. Um, so yeah, within six, six weeks of having symptoms, yeah, I had a colonoscopy and they told me that I had actually ulcerative proctitis. So just kind of at the very bottom. Although I did a little bit more research and I think it might have been more like proctosigmoditis, like the bottom 25 centimeters. So yeah, I went on a few different medications. It's funny, the medication I started with Canaza suppositories, I'm actually currently on now because I still have my rectum. So that feels a bit full circle. But yeah, at the time they didn't really help. And so I started a few other medications to try. What other symptoms were you experiencing at that time? Did you have a lot of like the typical bloating and pain that went along with the blood? Yeah, yeah. And it actually, it did, as I was trying different things, got worse. That flare lasted for seven months. And I actually kind of was starting to feel convinced that it had spread beyond just the bottom 25 centimeters. And I had a flex sigmoid towards the end of the flare, not actually knowing if the flare was ending or not. And that kind of confirmed that the inflammation was still around the bottom 25. But yeah, just some severe stomach pain and To be dealing with that in the midst of taking uh, anatomy for OT school where we're like dissecting cadavers and there's just some pretty intensive work. I was just tired all the time, but I did manage to get through that semester. And actually like a week after having that flexidmoid, the doctor tells me it's active and I'm still feeling rough. I actually kind of feel like I spontaneously go into remission, but I actually had done a number of things like this restrictive diet. And because I was in such a rough situation, my mom was actually cooking all of my food. She was an hour away and we would like shuttle it with friends that were going to my hometown. So it was kind of a combination of that diet. Was it any specific diet or did you just identify foods that were not causing you issues? So at the time, it was a kind of a specific diet from this dietitian. Um, her first name was Agalie, Agalie Jacob. I think she was like in Australia, maybe. And it was just a diet she had created herself to um, help with IBS symptoms. And, you know, since my journey, as my journey continued, I had like two years of respite um, from 2014 to 2016, 
I um, did a lot with modifying my diet. The common theme with me and diet was a more paleo focus, limiting carbs. And that's kind of what this was. But yeah, when I went into remission the first time, I, you know, I kind of eased back into eating a regular diet. And I was able to be in remission for two years just um, on sulfazalazine. And so, yeah, I was feeling pretty good and kind of having this hope like, okay, that was really weird. Hopefully it never happens again. I think with having a chronic illness like that, there's definitely, you go through the stages of grief multiple times in different ways. And I'm really, really grateful I got to experience the majority of graduate school in remission because I think things would have been very, very difficult. Otherwise, I mean, who knows if I would have even been able to finish school. Um, And I was really grateful to be able to complete my degree. How do you think you got through that first semester? Because you said that was when the flare was starting to come down, but you were still in the flare, but playing with your diet. How do you think you got through that first semester? Was it just sheer will and determination to, to finish? Yeah. I mean, I know like I, I, I had some concerns at times, like if I was actually going to pass anatomy, but thankfully I did. But it was really just going to class, studying and sleeping. I didn't really do anything else. So, yeah, I think just having my support system of my parents nearby, my mom cooking and shuttling food for me. So my support system definitely helped. And then just, yeah, kind of doing what I had to do and not really doing much else to enjoy my life at the time. But, yeah, I mean, it it was only really, I say, four months of grad school flaring. And then I went into remission. And then there was always a little bit of like, you know, fear and little scares where I'd see a little blood, um, but then it would kind of clear up. And so I kind of, yeah, over the two year period, somewhat like let my guard down and felt like, okay, even if I have moments of scares, it's probably going to stabilize. And so I was actually um, in Bozeman, Montana, finishing up OT school, doing a rotation, something I had gotten set up. I love the West and um, have family. So I went to grad school in Virginia and that's where I grew up. And I had a little bit of a hiccup refilling my sulfazalazine. And so I was without it for about two weeks. And then around that time, I also kind of started having symptoms, but I had gone through enough periods where I like went a few days without taking my medications and then things restabilized. So even as I was having symptoms again, I was just like, oh, it's going to stabilize. And I went on cordifoam, a rectal steroid, which I had been on to get into remission for the first flare and was just feeling like, okay, I got it under control before I'm going to get it under control again. And when I started my career as an occupational therapist, I decided I wanted to be out West. So miles away or thousands of miles away from where my parents are in Virginia. And I found a job. What was it about the West that was calling you to it, having grown up in, you said, Virginia? So I actually um, was born in New Mexico, and that's where my you know parents spent the majority of their years. And yeah, we moved to Virginia when I was seven, and it was kind of a, a move that my dad made to raise me and my brother in kind of a a more flourishing environment than the town we were living in in New Mexico. But we always still felt quite attached to our roots in New Mexico. And yeah, it was just kind of like as I went through grad school, I had this feeling kind of all throughout growing up that I didn't want to stay in Virginia and felt more and more like going back out west, but not New Mexico, somewhere different. And then, yeah, when I was in uh, Montana for three months, I that was where it kind of solidified. Um, so I, I ended up finding, finding a job in eastern Idaho, so moving just a few hours south of where I was in Montana. And so, yeah, I moved there flaring, but still taking these uh, t- topical steroids. So the inflammation was somewhat at bay, but then, yeah, eventually... My doctor 
who was still in Virginia at the time was just like, okay, yeah, we need to get you off the steroids. So I switched over to uh, enema, like a mesalamine enema, and that stabilized me for a bit. And I remember talking to the doctor and it seemed like I was actually on the brink of remission. So that was kind of my last conversation with my doctor in Virginia. But then, yeah, I thought I was doing okay, but then it started to kind of spiral and I met with another GI doctor locally. But part of my story was a lot of skipping through GI doctors because I didn't have a very good experience with a lot of them. Just being a pretty sensitive person who really wants to address things holistically, I felt like I was getting a lot of older men that just didn't have the kindest bedside manner. And I think kind of just a common theme I frequently ran into is if I was seeing more integrative naturopath doctors to work on stuff, the things that I was trying with them, the traditional GI doctors did not support. So I actually kind of ran into a situation where I was without a GI doctor for two years, even two and a half years, because, um, yeah, I met with a GI doctor here and we, we tried an oral, an oral steroid that wasn't prednisone and it's slipping my mind, but I feel like most people with IBD (laughs) would know what I'm talking about that you can use for a longer period, but yeah, that didn't help me. And so when I've had a follow-up with that doctor, Basically, the next route was for me to try biologics or immunosuppressants. I was not ready for that yet um, because I had had enough success managing it more naturally and with gentler medications. And my lab work was actually very good at the time. I had started working with a naturopathic doctor and we were trying some stuff. And I was telling the doctor what I was trying and just kinds of shuts me down there. And I end up just completely crying during that session. He doesn't suggest having a follow-up. He's like, okay, well, if you want to go off on your own and do your own thing, like your blood works fine, that's fine. And, you know, since he had brought me to tears, I wasn't really wanting to try to have a follow-up with him. And he wasn't saying like, I want to see you again in two months. So that entered a period of uh, about two and a half years of me not having a GI doctor which I can't say I recommend, but at the same time, that's my journey and I don't really regret it. So I tried a lot of more natural integrative strategies, acupuncture, and then, yeah, just going deep down rabbit holes with research on diet. Did you stay working with the naturopathic doctor at that point? Um, Yes, until there were some switches in that system where then nobody was actually available to work with me. Yeah, there. I guess it was a short period where I wasn't really working with any doctors. But I did um, in 2019, spring of 2019, um, start working with a functional medicine doctor. And there was kind of a team there. And actually, um, the functional medicine doctor got me connected with a GI doctor that they kind of had some degree of relationship with. What happened during that time when the previous GI doctor dismissed you and wasn't really looking to follow up with you? What did you do during that short period? And what was it that really brought you back into, all right, I need some help from the medical world? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there was just this pretty heavy fear of going on immunosuppressants and biologics. And so I was determined to do everything I could before going that route. So during that two-year period, I had periods where I felt somewhat stable. Like I was always flaring. So because of dietary changes and I, yeah, I got so many books and kind of, yeah, every kind of diet that has been studied or trialed for IBD, I tried. And I actually, I I had a decent amount of success on this diet from University of Massachusetts. It's called the IBD AID diet. 
And that was kind of what I was on for throughout that period. And I, you know, was really hoping that with a combination of diets, reducing objectively more inflammatory foods, and then ones that I have sensitivities to, and then yeah, taking supplements and just modifying my lifestyle and eliminate eliminating various irritants that are just pervasive in society, that that would be what needed to be done to actually get my body back into the natural rhythm. And there were many times where I just felt very close, but then it just didn't last. So when I did get connected with a new GI doctor, we had a colonoscopy in 2020. And by that time, the inflammation had spread to my entire colon. And so then it was determined that I, it's time to try a biologic. And I tried Intivio for about six months, got no benefit from it <laughs> at all, and had, you know, some blood work at the six-month mark that I guess was indicating I was developing some antibodies so that it, even if I wasn't having any benefit yet, I probably wouldn't. And it might actually get to the point where it would, you know, not even, where it'd be more harmful for my body than helpful. And when I moved away from Intivio, I had kind of already made a decision that before trying another biologic, I was going to try another integrative method called helminth therapy, which is kind of out there. And this was kind of with the encouragement of my family. And my mom is a nurse. um, And so she's very keyed into Western medicine, but has also always been cautious about medications. So that's kind of how I got to where I was in my journey was just how I was raised. You know, we're definitely like not against medications, but this idea of like, if we can avoid it because so many medications have harmful side effects, let's see what we can do. And so my mom had done a lot of research which then led me to doing research. One thing that's been amazing on my journey is just having a mom that's always been a couple steps ahead of researching stuff and just always providing so much support, even all the way across the country. That will become prevalent in kind of the breaking part of my story that happened last year or, you know, the climax of my story leading to me ultimately getting my colon removed. But I was trying these helmets for several months, and there's different types. So helminth therapy goes with alongside the hygiene hypothesis, which is this idea that, and we've seen trends, that autoimmune diseases are a lot more prevalent in developed countries and a lot more common than they used to be. And so there's this theory that because of sanitation practices, our bodies, some bodies that are more susceptible to autoimmune disease, actually don't know what to do with themselves or immune systems don't. And it was something I thought was very likely to be part of my issue because I have always had a really good immune system hardly ever got sick. And so even, yeah, when I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, it was just like, this is weird because I've always been so healthy. But then it was also like, well, I've always had a really good immune system. So maybe actually an overactive immune system that age 23, which is a very common time for people to develop autoimmune disease. And that's when it hit me. My immune system just decided like, I'm bored. I need to get to work. Let's attack healthy tissue. So in the past, before we had modern sanitation systems, people were actually living with parasites in them. And the immune system was used to that. So helmet therapy is actually introducing parasites, specific parasites that have been studied and identified to be helpful for modulating the immune system and producing minimal side effects, that the side effects are often experienced early on when adjusting, but long-term side effects 
like you can see in immunosuppressants and biologics, not there. So to me, that felt much more desirable to try before trying more biologics. And I tried three different types. And actually, now that I think of it, I actually tried one biologic before I, I mean, sorry, one helminth TSO before I had the colonoscopy and one on Intivio. So the Intivio was actually kind of like the middle of my helmet sandwich. And I was trying another round of two different types for several months and not getting benefit, but also wanting to wait it out. But then, yeah, things kind of came to a T. I had a colonoscopy in July of 2022. And then... A week later, I went to the hospital for the first time. And this whole time, you were still struggling with symptoms because you never got into remission. So you're still struggling with symptoms throughout everything. Right. Yes. And I'd have like, you know, periods where things would feel okay, but then periods where I plummet and symptoms would get really, really bad. And the frequency of that, of them plummeting and things getting really, really bad, the frequency was getting higher. And I remember actually in March having a really bad episode and just feeling like I want my colon taken out right now. And then it stabilized. But then, yeah, July, it kind of plummeted again. And I developed a cyst in my labia and it just kind of grew really big, really fast. I was exhausted. And my mom was actually in town for the colonoscopy and she flies back to Virginia, kind of knowing that things are still off with me. And my boyfriend took me to the ER the evening after she flies back to Virginia. (laughs) And then two days later, she's flying back and ends up spending three weeks with me. (laughs) I was just going to ask if she jumped on the next flight back out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what had happened is I developed a fistula. That caused it, that caused a cyst, like a Bartholin cyst in my labia, but it was, you know, full of stool because it was through a, a fistula. And so by the time I went to the emergency room, I had developed sepsis. And yeah, they put me on antibiotics. And then a few days later, they put me on a very heavy steroid. And they actually, I had to get a surgery in the hospital to get the cyst debrided. And so after six days in the hospital, I actually had to go into an infusion center every day for two weeks to get antibiotic infusions and to get steroid injections. But my inflammation was able to be under control with the heavy dose of steroids. I was on solumedrol injections and they were slowly tapering down and then it was high doses of prednisone and tapered down. But it was when I was in the hospital where I was like, okay, we need to get my colon removed and soon. And I had spent years trying really hard to avoid having to get my colon removed, but because things were so challenging for a long time, and during the time I was on Intivio, and Intivio just wasn't doing anything, that was kind of when I came to terms with getting my colon removed might be the best option for me. Had your previous GI doctors talked to you about having your colon removed as a course of treatment? Or did you just know from knowing the disease and understanding its course that it was always a possibility? Yeah, I definitely knew more so through understanding the disease and doing my own research. I think a lot of the communication through from the doctors that I had was kind of just like, try all the medications available. I think often that is kind of the route because Getting your colon removed really is such a big deal. Having an ostomy is a huge lifestyle adjustment. And it seems like most doctors just really want patients to try as many of the medications before going that route. I should also say I had a doctor switch in 2021, the GI doctor who had put me on Intivio. <laughs> Another experience with GI doctors. Um, because, you know, I was wanting to do the helminths again and uh, trying to do things a different way and also had a fairly severe case. My doctor, who at the time was the most highly regarded doctor in my area, he um, 
first off, let me say that when I woke up from the colonoscopy he did in 2020, I wake up to hearing him say, like, you have the worst case I've seen in 10 years, like really abruptly, which bedside manner is that's not really the kindest way to communicate. But anyway, he comes in in 2021 when I'm kind of talking about what I'm planning on doing. And it's just like, your case is too complicated for me and I'm going to let you go as a patient. And then he said, also, I'm leaving this area and I'm no longer going to be part of the practice. And I'm like, you could have just said the second part. (laughs) But then I actually did end up with a doctor through the same hospital system that it took a few months because that doctor didn't actually suggest this doctor. It was more the functional medicine people that recommended. And this doctor I still work with, he... I don't even know how many doctors I went through in eight years, but I think it was about seven GI doctors has been my favorite more so because he has been respectful of my knowledge and my process. So I was doing the home notes at the beginning of working with him, which since it's not FDA approved, he can't officially approve himself, but he's like, I know that there's enough on this that, I'm not going to stop you from doing this. Like I can't publicly officially condone it, but I respect your knowledge. So yeah, I was under his care when I went to the hospital and the fistula was developed. And so when I had this fistula, there was some thought about like, you might actually have Crohn's because fistulas are so much more common with Crohn's disease than ulcerative colitis. But since I had just had a colonoscopy, a week prior to getting admitted to the hospital, the pathology still very much indicated that it was still ulcerative colitis. And I think really what was happening is I had just had so much inflammation in my rectum area that I was bearing down a lot just to get anything out. And the pressure of that probably is what contributed to the fistula developing. And people that don't have IBD can develop fistulas sometimes. But just knowing that now that I've got a fistula down there that is going to come back easily during times of inflammation, getting it out is going to be the way to go. And so I was able to get surgery scheduled two months later and had my colon removed September 30th of last year. And at that point, it sounds like you had mentally come to the point of acceptance with everything Mm -hmm. that had just happened. And so it was really, let's just do this. Yeah. And it's oddly like it was meant to happen, me being in the hospital and almost dying because I had talked with my GI doctor about like, okay, I think I'm ready to get an appointment set up to talk with a surgeon. And then he told me like, you know, I recently sent a patient down there and he was turned away from surgery because he hadn't tried enough medications. So because I had only tried Intivio, I was under the impression, like he was under the impression that for them to agree to do surgery, I would need to try more. Don't know if that's true or not, but having this fistula, it was just very clear that instead of trying more medications, getting it out is probably going to be the best route to go with my health. So oddly grateful for it. Just needed to have some fire to actually motivate things to move. How has life been now after that surgery? You're still preparing for another surgery in January. So talk to me about what this window of time has been after having the first surgery, have you reached remission? Are you on medications? What's what's it like in this period right now? And then what's going to happen in January? Yeah. So when I decided that I wanted to get my colon removed, I was actually really, really hoping that they would remove the rectum as well at the same time. I had already decided probably a year prior that if I was going to get my colon removed, I was going to have a permanent ostomy. I had heard enough stories about people getting a J pouch and even stories of it working well for 20 years, but then it failing on them. So statistically speaking, I just didn't feel like I wanted to go that route. Like even if I was going to have several great years, I also don't have a whole lot of faith in the future of the healthcare system as a healthcare professional myself. 
it's just kind of this reality that I feel like a lot of us are, are living with, just navigating the health care system is difficult. And I unfortunately don't see a clear path that it's going to improve significantly. So, you know, I have concerns on what getting surgery in 10, 20 years might even look like. So I was just feeling pretty um, confident that if I get my colon removed, it's going to be an ostomy that's permanent because of the success rate mostly. And then after just having to trial so many different medications and alternative interventions that basically were a 50% success rate across the board, I'm like, yeah, I want to be with the highest success rate possible. But then my surgeon, when I met with my surgeon, she told me that she would not be removing the rectum, even if ultimately I was going to get it out because of the recovery process and um, it just being very, very painful to remove the rectum. And another thing that has been super helpful with me coming to terms with getting an ostomy is connecting with people on Instagram and people that are sharing their stories. And so a lot of people sharing about how their quality of life is so much better with an ostomy really helped me come to terms with like, okay, this is going to be a good route for me. And the day before I met with my surgeon, this woman who had just gotten her rectum removed was sharing about it and just talking about how much pain she was in. So that in combination with my surgeon explaining it, I was like, okay, I, I understand. I'm going to, you know, I was kind of like, maybe I'll just be able to push it away for a long time. But then actually after I got my colon removed a week later, I get a call from my surgeon and she tells me that she found precancerous cells in my rectum. And I imagine they were probably there when my GI doctor did a scope a few months prior, but because there was so much inflammation, like you can't necessarily see all the areas that might be concerning. So I went back down. My surgeon is three hours south of me. So I went back down there and got those removed. And then it was determined that I should probably have scopes of my rectum every six months just to kind of see where things are at. And let me just say that like once I recovered from the surgery, I have felt great. I still have inflammation in my rectum. Blood and mucus has to be passed fairly regularly. I still have some urgency. And in those moments, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get this out. (laughs) But since stool's not being passed there, even though I have inflammation down there, it doesn't really bother me too much. But when I had the scope of the rectum in March, the inflammation was really severe. And yeah, so kind of decided that January would be a good time to get it removed. And yeah, I'm not looking forward to it because I feel like I have been able to adjust to living with an ostomy and I'm living a really fulfilling life. I'm able to go out to restaurants with friends, which is something that I didn't do for a long time. Pretty active with outdoor stuff. And that's something I'm still gradually easing into. But with my music, yeah, I'm able to perform and I've got all these ideas of projects that I want to be working on. And knowing that I'm going to, you know, kind of be in a disability state for uh, several weeks is something I'm definitely not looking forward to. But I know it's something that I just have to get done. Talk to me a little bit about your career path. After you went through graduate school, you became an occupational therapist. Mm-hmm. Do you draw on your own experiences dealing with chronic illness when you when you work with a lot of your patients? Yeah. So, and that's actually another big change that has happened in the past year is switching my practice setting as an occupational therapist. When I started As an occupational therapist in 2017, I went into pediatrics working at an outpatient therapy clinic and also doing some school-based occupational therapy, working with the same company that was a great supportive company for six years. The, yeah, accommodations and the compassion and the understanding that I got 
with my health situation, I was just very grateful for Like they, they kept me around for a long time because they treated me well and were really understanding. And I went back to work for that company after I had recovered from my surgery. I had to take like a four month break when I was hospitalized in July and then came back in November of last year. But yeah, for that, I was working more with children with developmental disabilities, which I enjoyed. But after six years, and actually a lot of my experience with my chronic illness, I was feeling pushed to do something different. I did do some teletherapy when I was working for that company, and it was school-based teletherapy which had some challenges, but I also just really loved working from home. And even though I feel a lot better and have more energy, the things that, you know, come with an ostomy, it's it's still somewhat challenging to be out all day working, or it's just more comfortable to be at home. And so I found an opportunity to work for a mental health OT practice, which is not currently super common for occupational therapy, even though the profession had its roots in mental health. It's a lot of states don't cover, um, state insurances don't cover occupational therapy as a mental health service. But I actually, I work for a company based in Oregon that does cover mental health OT. So I provide telehealth for clients, which I think is just really great for my energy levels. And yeah, when I interviewed for the job, I was very open about my chronic illness and the fact that I had ostomy and that I feel like because of the struggle from it all, I've developed a greater level of understanding and compassion. And a lot of the clients that I have, not all of them, but a lot of them do have various chronic illnesses or even like kind of unknown illnesses. And I just have a lot of understanding for the struggle with that. And so I feel like I have been able to connect with my clients really well and to just support them in the unknown. I think that's the biggest thing, the biggest lesson that a lot of us learn with chronic illness is that for my case, like even though I had a diagnosis that had all these treatment options, there's no guarantee that any of those are going to work for you. And if they work for a while, they might not continue to work. And then, you know, you can talk to somebody else with the exact same diagnosis and what works for them might not work for you. So I really learned a lot about just accepting the unknown. And I think often that's what clients who need mental health support need from a therapist that, you know, they are doing all that they can to try to get answers, but there's a lot of unknowns and just being patient and understanding of that process. I feel like it's not something you can even fully grasp until you've been through it on your own. So I am really grateful to be able to work from home to support clients with their mental health and many of them struggling with chronic illness. And I'm still fairly new in this role. I started it in May of this year. So I'm still learning a lot and it's been really rewarding. Such an important and rewarding field to be in. That's incredible. It's a little sad to hear you say that many insurance plans don't recognize mental health as occupational when therapy, when you mentioned that's what it has its roots in. Yeah. And hopefully that's changing. I feel like nationwide we're experiencing a mental health crisis. And so I think with as we continue to advocate occupational therapists for our role in mental health, that hopefully more states will start to cover occupational therapy more with mental health. Yeah, you know, just the healthcare system, there's always red tape and politics and it's convoluted. And yes, it is discouraging that it's not widely accepted, but hopefully we will get there slowly but surely. Hopefully we will. So talk to me a little bit about your own mindset, mental health kind of journey, because I would imagine hearing you talk that especially through those years where you'd go from extreme flares to kind of feeling better and then extreme flare again, and then having the window of time where you were in the big flares shortened so that you were just always in a bad flare. I would imagine that that's partly when 
you started to lean on music as part of your journey, because you mentioned that music was this refuge and this passion as part of your journey. So talk to me a little bit about your mindset through those times and when music came into play. Yeah. So I have always played music since age seven. I took classical violin lessons and played in orchestras and always tried to keep playing. But I I think I realized fairly early that I wasn't really all that passionate about classical music, but it was what was available to me. So I kind of felt lost in my musical journey. Like I wanted to play, but I wasn't quite sure how it was actually going to fulfill me. And when I moved to Idaho in 2017 and this flare just kept persisting, my life for about two years was really just cooking for myself and work because I had started my career as an occupational therapist in 2017. And I didn't, you know, there, there is kind of a, a learning curve when you start a new career as a health professional. And even like if you switch practices, like I'm kind of going through another learning curve as well, but have a lot more um, flexibility with my schedule. So it's a lot easier now. But, you know, I had my music, but I hardly picked them up because I just didn't have the energy. I would go visit my uncle in Montana every once in a while. And he always insisted that I bring my fiddle. So that was great where I was like, OK, I haven't touched my violin in three months, but I'm going to go visit my family and I need to bring my fiddle. I had in my head probably all my life subconsciously like this desire to write songs, but never really knew how. And then... What really changed it for me was in 2019, I attended a music camp in the mountains at the ski area an hour and a half from where I live. And when I moved to um, Eastern Idaho, I learned about the camp and I was like, wow, I should really do that at some point. But the first two years, it just did not really feel like an option in regards to other stuff I had going on and just feeling overwhelmed. But by 2019, I was in this spot where I was like, okay, like you've got, you've done so much work with cooking your food, researching. That was when I start, started to feel like I could start to um, branch out and actually try to do more of my life besides work and cook. And so, yeah, I went to this four-day music camp and just had so much inspiration from the instructors, from the other participants. I was taking the fiddle class, which was great, but I got um, the most inspiration from this man named Joe Craven, who lives in Northern California, and he's just very immersed in the creative process. And I was staying in an Airbnb 30 minutes away from the ski area. And the last day of camp, I am driving up to camp, 30 minutes, uh, entire song comes out of me. And I think it was really just being in the right environment around the, the right people to help get the floodgates going. And so like then I, I get to camp and they're doing some closing speeches and I just like very quickly, I'm like, I need to write all these words down. And the next day I was able to put it to guitar chords, which at the time I didn't really know much guitar, but it was really writing that first song that got me motivated to work on guitar more, play with other people. And um, I went through a little period where I didn't write at all um, and wasn't actually sure if I was going to write more songs. But then about eight months later, around the time COVID started, you know, I had more free time because of that. That's when I started writing more. And I've been on a pretty steady roll since and yeah, perform out in the community and have done quite a bit with just connecting other creatives. And I think I've really done a lot with just building community in the past couple of years, which has been really rewarding. And I think to some degree, it's because my first two years here, I felt so lonely just being in survival mode. And I think a lot of people struggle with loneliness in society, whether they have chronic illness or not. And so just getting things in place so that people can connect with like-minded people who share similar interests, it's it's just, yeah, I, I really like to help people find community because during that period of time where I didn't really have community, it just feels even more beneficial 
and incredibly important in healing. You mentioned to me previously in an email that you've gotten very good at prioritizing things that you are passionate about. So how have you learned to balance what you're passionate about with work and health so that you can have that passion and that joy? I see it in your face as you're talking about it and just how much, how beneficial that is just to your overall well-being. Yeah, and I think for everyone, it is different. I think it is very hard to stay afloat financially these days, which breaks my heart. But I think for me, there was some level of like, maybe all the things I thought I wanted out of life that cost money, I don't actually need. (laughs) And also the fact that I work in healthcare, there's a lot of part-time opportunities with healthcare. So When I had the opportunity to do so, I switched from working full-time as an occupational therapist to to working part-time. And for me, being more introverted and only having so much energy, I have found that there is a kind of a balance of a happy spot of how many clients I can have to truly be the best therapist. Because having a full-time caseload, it just burnt me out and I wasn't actually able to be the best for my clients. So working on a more part-time basis and being able to use a lot of my extra time towards music um, has been a privilege that I've been able to, to lean into. And, you know, I, I don't make a lot of money through my music, but every opportunity I can to get paid gigs, I'll take. And, you know, there's always this hope that it'll continue to, to grow But yeah, for me, just balancing how I spend my time has been really helpful. So we're actually going to end this episode with one of your songs. Tell me about the song that we are going to end with and just kind of what it means to you, what it's about. Yeah, so this is currently the only song I have up on streaming platforms. My stage name is Kylie Pett, and this song is called Brighter Days. I released it about two years ago in November of 2021, um, and it's called Brighter Days, and it's really just focused on encouraging the listener. We all go through ups and downs in life, and when we're in the downs, it can be really, really hard. And this is just kind of a song to remind you that things get better and that you might not always notice things getting better because sometimes it's gradual but and also just embracing the lows and understanding that's part of life and that the more you can embrace the low parts of life the the better the high parts are going to feel the more meaningful it's going to feel so yeah i am hoping to get more music released in the next year So yeah, stay tuned if you like this song. That's wonderful. And if people want to follow you and keep up with you, with you, your IBD journey, your music journey, where are all the places they can find you online? Yeah, so I'm um, very active on Instagram, both with my health account, which is just Kylie Pet, and then my music account is Kylie Pet Music. And then I also have a website, KyliePet.com, that has links to like my YouTube in addition to my social media. I will put all of those in the show notes so that everyone can find them quickly. And before we close and get into your song, is there any last message or any final words of advice that you want to share with the listeners today? Um, I would just encourage everyone who's, you know, in the thick of the struggle of IBD to keep going. And even if it's hard right now, try to make lemonade out of lemons because I think there are a lot of silver linings that we can find through our struggle. It's a great message. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your story and for sharing your music with us. Thank you so much for having me. Inspires you to reach out for more in life 
stay, some will go Who they'll be, you won't quite know And you have a heart with so much love to give When they drift away from you Send a genuine adieu And be grateful for the lessons in your life in which they lived And when you're lost, your soul is shaken listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at cronesfitnessfood.com where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the buy me a coffee link to send a little love or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at cronesfitnessfood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.